0: Hello, and welcome back to New Books and National Security, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Beth Windish, your host, and today we'll be talking with Mark Ambender about his new book, The Brink, President Reagan and the Nuclear War Scare of 1983. Mark, welcome to the show. It's wonderful to be here, Beth. Some of our listeners might recognize your name from your bylines. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: I uh, was lucky to spend 12 years in washington dc at abc news where i covered politics and um initially i really wanted to get into national security reporting and journalism not the type of thing though that you can just kind of knock on the door of you know the cia or dhs and say you know hey talk to me so it it, (laughs) it took me a while but um luckily i was at the atlantic at that point and uh and national journal which uh which is a trade publication based in Washington, and my curiosity got the better of me, and I began to report on stories that were of interest to me on subjects ranging from the U.S. Secret Service to nuclear command and control. I wrote a book about the apparatus of secrecy called The Deep State, and this was several years before the term became popular uh, among uh, the Right here in the U.S. as a way to portray the alleged conspiracy theory that is at the heart of the effort to uh, allegedly bring down President Trump. Uh, I then moved out to California and spent a couple of years writing this book, and I've been teaching journalism at the University of Southern California since then.
0: And what's the backstory for The Brink? How did you get involved with this topic?
1: I had always been fascinated with nuclear command and control, in part because, to me, the foundation of our national security posture after World War II runs through or ran through a single document, the PSYOP, you know, the single integrated operational plan, the nuclear war plan, which has, you know, since been renamed And I had read a number of books about the fragility of the system and efforts over time uh, to sustain continuity of government efforts, secret efforts, and all that really interested me. I was looking for a way to jump in and write something about that subject. I had no idea what. And then I saw a documentary about the 1983 war scare, something I was vaguely aware of. And then I saw the documentary. And after seeing the documentary, I wondered if there had been a popular book written about it, because the documentary still leaves many questions unanswered, which is fundamentally, why did we get to this point where the two superpowers, none of whom actually wanted nuclear war, nearly or seemed to back into it without realizing it? And we almost had a situation where an accidental conflict was triggered. So I had a couple questions. One, was this really true, or was this just an exaggeration that sometimes history throws at you uh, through the lens of future effect, uh, events? So, a, did it really happen like this? And b, what were the from the thirty thousand foot level and from the you know two inch level? What were the real reasons why the Soviet Union would be that scared? to just tear apart so many decades worth of of doctrine that was developed as a way of comforting the two superpowers and preventing them from getting to that point. How did we almost actually get to that point? What were the the sort of secrets at the heart of this story? turned out a book hadn't been written about it. There were still plenty of people alive to talk and who had not been ever contacted and hadn't really talked about The book, or some of the provocative NATO exercises that were at the heart of it, and I just, without really knowing if I could answer the questions, I just kind of dug in, and luckily um, was able to uh, get a a book going. And you know, a couple years later, I popped out of the burrow hole with with a book that I think answers a lot of the a lot of the questions, and I hope will be relevant to some of the grand questions we have today about the relevance of NATO and uh the the ability or at least the uh the the wisdom of meeting with with Russian leaders with different sorts of agendas going so it's been a long time coming but um again for me as as an author what i feel most proud of, assuming the book sells, you know, maybe one copy, my mother will buy it, is that I was able to answer the questions that I had set out to, which is fundamentally, did we actually get close to a nuclear war? Number one. And number two, why?
0: Before we dive into the story, and there's there's so many interesting parts to those questions, um, I'd like to talk a little bit about the writing. The Brink, in some ways, is like a real a real life Tom Clancy novel with interwoven stories and all these different characters. How did you decide to write the write the book in this style?
1: Well, my intention was always to write it in that style because uh, that style would attract a larger readership that extends beyond historians and, and national security professionals. I really wanted and thought that. This story, not not simply or not at all, really, because I was writing it, but simply because it was important, deserved a wide readership. And it was a challenge for me to try and write it in, an, in a narrative style. But A, that kept me interested in doing it. I didn't want to just write a, a dry 400-page history of the time period. And frankly, there were a lot of compelling stories that I came across when I was writing and reporting and researching the book, and it lent itself to a narrative form, and I, I just think it's a, a persuasive way of communicating because when we think of stories, obviously we think of we think in the narrative archetypes that you know Tom Clancy uh, and others did, and of course a lot of you know Cold War fiction from John Le Carre to um, to uh, you know to uh, Clancy to Charles Urey have, uh, a, have a distinct, uh, not necessarily linear, but distinct narrative line through them. So I wanted to try and write a book that was as entertaining as possible to a wide audience, but preserved the factual standards of a nonfiction book, which it does. Everything in the book is true. I didn't take any liberties by... Putting thoughts into people's heads, and if I assume that somebody might be thinking of this, I certainly say um, that you know this is an assumption and not a reality. But um, the great thing about it is that it's it's all true. But it does take time to do that, and certainly, as I mean, I, I'm sure that people don't necessarily want to hear too much about the process of it. But it takes drafts and and editors and people to kind of push me to go in that direction because. As a, as a national security geek myself, you know, I, I can get easily lost in the acronyms and the different national security directives and, you know, the three-letter agencies and all that. And um, uh, I didn't, you know, I didn't really want to do that. I wanted to write a book that practitioners in the field and historians would find to be in advance in the field and would find to be, you know, hopefully a definitive history of this time period, but really something that anyone who a like you know spy books which which most people do reading uh you know on the on the beach in the summer somewhere um and and general audience who was also interested in geopolitics but the politics of the time would find interesting so the the crafting and the style lent itself to that
0: and the and the book starts with a bit of history on nuclear decision making, and you you referenced this a little bit in your um, in your backstory of the book, the uh, single integrated operational plan. Can you talk a little bit about that and how it worked up through President Nixon?
1: Yeah, the the SIOP, or which is uh, how that acronym was was generally referred to. Was you know the the general war plan of the United States against the major other nuclear power, the Soviet Union, um, beginning uh, it, it sort of took ten years to develop the psyop during Eisenhower's presidency um, when it you know became clear that the Soviet Union would be the paramount adversary. And the Soviet Union, having developed ballistic missiles and having developed a hydrogen bomb program of their own, would need uh, a significant force deterring them in order to prevent them from you know, expanding throughout Europe after World War II. And the sign up, though, was almost exclusively the province of the U.S. Air Force which kept its writing, kept the target sets, kept the assumptions behind it, not only highly classified, but really away from the eyes of civilians who nominally and and constitutionally are in charge of defense policy. The Air Force's sense being, well, we know how to do this. We know what's right. We know what's better. Leave this to us. Presidents, including Kennedy and particularly uh, after Kennedy was aware of how bellicose some of his generals were uh, during the Bay of Pigs invasion, and some of the negotiations after the Bay, of, not the Bay of Pigs invasion, some of the the aftermath of that, and then the the you know the missile crisis, the Cuban missile crisis. Um, but even Kennedy was unsure, and his advisors, from a close-in perspective, were really unsure how to rein in the PSYOP. They had asked for more flexible options. Do we really need to destroy, have one war plan that destroys an entire country? Can we, is it possible? Do we have the technology? Are missiles accurate enough? Are bombs accurate enough so that we can withhold categories of targets? You do see progressively throughout time presidents wanting a lot more options and flexibility. And the authors of the PSYOP. At least nominally giving presidents these options, although of course it's entirely unclear if there was a spasm attack in nuclear war, and uh, a pre-delegated, let's say the, the president was wiped out in some sort of attack, vice president couldn't be found, and the generals uh, and and then you know later the navy admirals in charge of the psyop were in charge of running this war. Was there really? going to be that much of a discrimination between targets when the idea was to win war all out. Um, And and in truth, the technology did not exist until the very beginning part of the time period that my book talks about. But the technology to really precisely target a very small set of nuclear weapons and to retarget other nuclear weapons after spy satellites could say, well, this has been destroyed or this is what we have left, this is where we can send missiles next – that technology really didn't exist until the mid-1970s, early 1980s, and the PSYOP responded in form, and its drafters began to consider options other than simply completely destroying or deterring the enemy and, and taking um, a lot of larger target sets off the table, but trying something new such as, okay, we have the ability to decapitate leadership as opposed to kill, you know, 14 million Soviet citizens. Although, again, a lot of this was theoretical and it was modeled in war games. And practically it's very hard to believe that any nuclear attack from either side would not have resulted in escalation and would not have resulted in the deaths of tens of millions, if not more um innocent soviet and american and, and european and asian citizens across the world but the PSYOP, the thing to remember about the PSYOP is that it was a it was a military document that really governed the the priorities that the US military had um almost through the end of the cold war up until the beginning of the war on terrorism after 911 um if you just look at where and how mil- the military Spending was apportioned, uh, and the intelligence spending was apportioned over time. So, as a as a document that's just understanding critical to our understanding of our national security and defense history, just it 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 is um, it is essential, and it it played an outsized role in shaping policy decisions of presidents through Ronald Reagan, and one of the things that. I talk about in the book is Reagan's struggle to kind of understand what the PSYOP was and what it entailed and what a president could do if a president wanted to do something outside of the assumptions of the sort of nuclear priesthood that guarded and kept and wrote the PSYOP.
0: And right before Reagan came into office, there's this presidential directive, Presidential Directive 59, And you talk about it as a turning point in nuclear policy and doctrine for the U.S. Can you talk about what what that directive did and what the reaction was, both from within the Beltway and from the Soviets?
1: Presidential Directive 59, which was sort of uh, put into place in the waning months of the Carter administration, was the result of a several years long effort to take stock of the technology that existed at the time. These are new spy satellites that could show in real time if target A or target B or target C had been destroyed, and then concomitant to that, feed data back into computers at the then strategic air command, which could send out retargeted launch and aim points for the nuclear missiles that might not have been destroyed in some sort of retaliation attack. And implicit in that is the assumption that a nuclear war uh, might not just end in a day, but could actually last and could endure and could be protracted. And that a U.S. president, if he wanted, could, Use the nuclear deterrent for means other than simply deterring the Soviet Union. In other words, there may, since we have these nuclear weapons, there could be other uses for them. Particularly if we have the ability to see exactly where they go and what effects they have. A lot of it really was, and it's it's, it's um, surprisingly again linked to just the changes and the advances in intelligence gathering technology. But um, the the essence of Presidential Directive fifty nine which was enshrined uh, and signed into place by Jimmy Carter, was that the U.S. would commit to uh, fielding a force, a nuclear force that could fight a protracted nuclear war and could survive a first strike um, and could limit nuclear war to a certain theater of conflict, Uh, the European theater, for example. So the Soviets... um, primarily led by their, their leading defense theorists at the time, uh, Marshal Nikolai Orgakov, who would later become the equivalent of the Soviet uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, um, was uh, convinced that, that there was an orchestrated campaign first because presidential 15 the PD directive leaked immediately to the newspapers but he believed that its publication and its the doctrinal change was a way of signaling to the soviets that the us had the capacity to decapitate the soviet leadership and then retaliate in other words had a second strike capability which rendered a lot of the assumptions of mutually assured uh, mutually assured destruction which is you know we if you destroy us we'll destroy you and therefore we're not going to destroy each other it rendered all of them um uh, completely uh, mute and neutral. It just denuded them, um, and he believed as well uh, that um, in attempting to fortify what I like to call the strategic back end, which is the presidency itself, ensuring that there's a way for the presidency to survive a nuclear strike, which had always been part of the assumption, was you know not just. Everything would be gone, including the government of the United States, the government of the Soviet Union. Um, the United States was really preparing its force um, to actually fight a nuclear war, um, and not just to have one as a as, as a deterrent, but really to have one um, as an instrument in its arsenal to prosecute its affairs around uh, around the world, and um, that belief. Um, proliferated through the beginning of the Reagan administration and it became widespread within the thinking of the Soviet military and it created a scramble for them to try and address it. But they linked subsequent US policy changes to that doctrine as would make sense. And whatever President Reagan said in office and his own change to nuclear doctrine, again, they they linked to the evolution of the Psy up into sort of a a living weapon that could be used against them. And it really, in many ways, did depart from the spirit of mutually assured destruction because the Soviets could not keep up. They had numerical superiority in terms of the number of weapons they had and certainly the number of tanks that they had, the number of troops they could muster. But they weren't even close when it came to the precision targeting that the U.S. was developing. And certainly their spy satellites were much, much less adequate than ours were. We had much better technology than they did. Uh, And the qualitative edge was what really scared them. So they see all this technology. They have a lot of really great spies who are saying, look, the U.S. is developing these amazing technologies. You have this public doctrine now which says that the U.S. is committed to fighting a protracted nuclear war. Um, and surviving the first strike and possibly decapitating the leadership if necessary. Uh, you have bellicose rhetoric from the president of the United States that uh, who is committed publicly to saying, I want to end the Cold War on my terms. So just put yourself for a little bit, I ask people, in the shoes of Soviet leaders who are seeing all of this, knowing at the same time, that their economy is basically in shambles. They're spending 70% of GDP equivalent on defense um, and they really can't keep up and their troops are spread thin throughout the Soviet satellites uh, and they're losing confidence. And also they're a lot older and there are a lot of, of factional disputes within Soviet politics. You can begin to get a sense of some of the preconditions necessary for a grand and perhaps catastrophic misinterpretation of what the U.S. was trying to do.
0: As we learn more in the book about these different players, we see there are several different stories that lead us to the 1983 scare. What were the major events that led to the nuclear war scare of 1983, and how close did we actually come? Let's
1: sort of start in 1978-79 period, just briefly, because this is when the Soviet Union As a way of keeping pressure on the U.S. and NATO, decided to field its uh, fairly deadly, fairly accurate um, intermediate-range ballistic missiles and target them towards the capital of of Europe. Uh, NATO responded by promising to deploy, by 1983, a number of weapons, Pershing missiles and ground-launched cruise missiles. Uh, to counter that threat, even though in Europe there was plenty of political opposition and division to that, so you had um, essentially a deployment of a new class of missiles targeted directly at NATO capitals. The idea being, both sides were preparing and hedging in case one side tried to do something that was um, that was irrational. Um, and then there's the election of President Reagan, um, who was portrayed in the Russian press and certainly who the Soviet leadership believed through and through. And there were a lot of disagreements within the Soviet leadership and military intelligence establishments. But everyone, I, I could not find a dissenting opinion in, in any of the um, uh, secondary accounts in the translated primary literature that I've read, everyone believed that Reagan was just a cowboy who, uh, was kind of a simple guy who believed in a world in black and white. And when he said he wanted to end the cold war and beat communism, he really wanted to just defeat the Soviet union. Um, those were sort of two rather large broad-based developments that, excuse me, that kind of, that kind of hastened it. Um, and, uh, it, uh, I would say another uh, another set of events that led directly to the war scare um, might not seem immediately connected, but um, look the 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 death uh, of uh, of Brezhnev in 1982, but then before that, a year before that, President Reagan nearly is assassinated. Um, and Reagan, who was a lot uh, who was more badly injured than his staff led on at the time, really left. Um, the episode with a renewed commitment, and this goes to Reagan's self-concept of himself, but a renewed commitment to rid the world of its nuclear threat, um, but didn't really know how to express that. And um, But he began to talk in much more stark language uh, about the reality of, of the threat of nuclear war. Um, Soviet leaders were dying, and those who weren't dying were old, and they were considering their own mortality, and they were worried about the fate of their country. Um, When you get to a certain age and you have maybe a couple of years at most left, or if you're Yuri Andropov who succeeded Brezhnev and you have kidney disease going into your presidency, again, your mind is not going to be on a bright, broad future for your country. It's going to be on a very near-term sense of of what that was. Emboldened by President Reagan's election, uh, the, the military uh, and branches of the military really stepped up their effort to inc- increase their sort of qualitative advantage over the Soviet Union. So the the U.S. Navy in particular led by uh, John Lehman, uh, John Lehman, who incidentally just published a book where he, he – too late for inclusion into my book, but um, I, I spoke to him for the book and he, he sort of recounted for me what he wrote in his book, but um, – he had as a goal of policy to scare the so – he just wanted to scare Soviet leadership in into um, believing that if – that the U.S. had the ability essentially to use its conventional and nuclear military might in very provocative ways and exercises uh, to keep the Soviet leadership on edge, um, to keep them scared and afraid, which – in his mind, would mean they wouldn't do anything stupid um, and they might capitulate to broad U.S. policy goals. Um, wasn't really clear how much Ronald Reagan understood exactly what the Navy was doing at the time. But for example, uh, in early 1983, without the White House's knowledge, although it's not clear whether the White House should have known about something this specific anyway, but it's part of an exercise called Fleetex, which is a major Pacific Command at the time exercise, um, for the first time nuclear uh, fighter bombers and not just U.S. surveillance planes, but nuclear fighter bombers took off from an aircraft carrier that was part of a major exercise and was supported by you know all the instruments of U.S. power and zoomed into Russian territory. The U.S. had extremely good intelligence on when Soviet reconnaissance planes would be up in the air and what the radar signatures looked like, zoomed into Soviet territory, buzzed the reconnaissance planes, and, like, suddenly disappeared, Um, which scared the hell out of the Soviets because the Soviets, A, knew that the U.S. could do that without uh, consequences, and the Soviets were way behind. And that, in turn, led the Soviets to give their commanders in the field more latitude to shoot down any plane that violated their airspace. And as we'll see in a, um, you know, in in about 30 seconds worth of my narrative exposition, we'll see why that turned out to be uh, a problem. Then President Reagan um, gives a speech known as the Evil Empire speech, where he says the the, uh, Soviet Union is the locus of evil in the modern world. Um, Now, Reagan's primary concern in giving that speech was domestic, domestic politics. He had Uh, he had fought a uh, sort of a rear guard movement to redefine uh, what nuclear disarmament would look like. And there was a big nuclear peace movement that burgeoned in Europe and it spread to the United States. And actually it helped Democrats win seats in the 1982 election. And Reagan wanted to remind the world and remind Americans why the Soviet threat was – was what the visceral part of the soviet threat was from his perspective so he gives this speech um it it doesn't have the effect necessarily that some historians have claimed in really scaring the soviets but it was part of uh, a course of what they were hearing at the same time um reagan comes out uh six months later with seemingly from out of the blue the strategic defense initiative which he truly, and there's no evidence to the contrary, truly thought that if it was developed, it was something that could be shared with the Soviet Union and would be a way for, of protecting both countries from uh, nuclear annihilation, kind of a, 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 an extra-secondary shield. This idea had been ceded to him long before when um, you know, he and, uh, and Edward Teller, who had developed the hydrogen bomb but had fallen out of favor with his colleagues, had met way back in, in, you know, in Berkeley in 1969. Reagan was obsessed with the idea of a missile defense shield, but truly for peaceful purposes. Soviets didn't believe him. They thought it was uh, an offensive weapon. They also thought that it was part of a series of, of secret US efforts that would use electronic warfare to decapitate or spoof or sabotage the Soviet nuclear command and control system. Um, there are some counter signs, I should say, at this moment. And Reagan was really interested in this point in trying to understand the Soviets and reducing some tension himself. So he opened up a back channel, for example, with Anatoly Dobrynin, who was the Soviet ambassador, and started to to, to talk with Dobrynin about, all right, well, how do we get to a point where I can start meeting with and talking with Soviet leaders? But you know, as he was doing this, his Defense Department was putting out strategies uh, at and um new doctrine reagan himself had ordered a sort of a review of nuclear doctrine as all presidents do as a pro forma matter and the new nuclear doctrine from the united states essentially said that okay well now the u.s has the capability not just to selectively target decapitate soviets but um smashing the soviet union and winning a nuclear war with minimal damage to the united states this was a classified strategy. It was leaked to the New York Times as classified strategies tend to be, um, right as the president was trying to establish uh, you know, a, some sort of a, an open liner back channel to the Soviet Union. So the summer um, gets really hot and let's go back to that, uh, that Soviet anxiety about US warplanes buzzing their territory when in late summer, uh, a Korean airliner a Korean you know Korean um, passenger jet that in its kind of profile looked like uh, you know a big u s uh, nuclear spy sniffing plane um, because of a literally uh, it turns out pilot didn't flip one switch in one direction and there weren't enough uh, backups but sent a passenger jet into Soviet territory um, there were, it was a communications issue and uh, it was shot down by Soviet Air Defense Command. The Soviets showing a willingness and a jitteriness at that time, in part because they had been burned by the U.S. directly several months earlier, but showing a willingness to actually shoot down something they thought was a a United States spy plane, which in and of itself is an escalation. And then a series of events happen in, in very close proximity. Shortly thereafter, maybe three or four weeks after this downing of a Korean airliner happened, a passenger plane, Um, there was a glitch in the Soviet warning system and the sort of Soviet equivalent of NORAD, which detects incoming ballistic ballistic missile threats, picked up what it seemed were five U.S. ICBMs headed in the direction of the Soviet Union. Um, And it took a, a very, very brave watch officer named Stanislav Petrov, who passed away last year, uh, it took him um, uh, an, an intense amount of fortitude, and later, and until he was belatedly recognized as a hero, but deciding not to alert his superiors to this because he was convinced that there's just no way that the U.S. would actually do this. But if he had alerted his superiors, given the way the nuclear command and control system in the Soviet Union worked, it would be, a, in a sense, taking the safety off the the trigger mechanism, making it much more likely that in absence of of real solid information, Soviet Union might have retaliated with a fleet or flight of ballistic missiles of its own before certainty could be established. And that's pretty scary. So if that were not enough, and it was not enough, at this time, uh, usually in the autumn, the US held a series of exercises as part of the demonstration of the NATO deterrent, where they would bring tens of thousands of troops from the United States to Europe, part of their return to uh, reforger, reforger was the name of the exercise, return of forces to Germany was how um, that word was was put together. This was the biggest reforger ever. Um, And it, again, in the context of everything else, it um, kept the Soviets on... On their their toes, the centerpiece uh, or of our story um, and the episode that caused the most concern and really, in a sense, brought us to the brink was an exercise, a nuclear exercise that NATO held every year called Able Archer, and it was a way to practice the primary task of what the uh, the nuclear custodial sites throughout Germany and other countries in NATO were there for, which was to hold US nuclear weapons, to wait for the appropriate communications codes and signals, and then to transfer them to the host country, which would, in theory, use them to uh, fight back against a Warsaw Pact invasion. Now, this was usually a command post exercise, which just meant they were testing communication systems. But this year in part because NATO uh, prodded by the U.S. um, wanted to realistically test how some of these communication systems would work in stressed conditions, changed the, the atmosphere of the exercise. And if you were watching these nuclear custodial sites from the outside, as East German spies who were passing information to the KGB certainly were, you would see bases go on full alert. Um, And at the same time, um, ever since the development of communications and signals intelligence in World War II, countries have always been wary when another country changes its signaling and communications procedures, which every country did from time to time. Um, Changing these procedures was usually a prelude to some large military movement and invasion. And NATO, it turns out, had secretly changed its nuclear command and control release procedures in the days before Abel Archer. They did this in in part because these new Pershing missiles were going to come in. And frankly, they had to increase the length of their messages to account for the number of new missiles that were going to be part of the arsenal. But they changed the procedures. The Soviets had pretty good spies. They thought they knew what the procedures were. And here suddenly was a set of messages that were new and different to them, and messages that they couldn't read. Um, And they were twinned with a very aggressive uh, nuclear command post exercise that was not just limited to command posts, but involved dozens, if not hundreds, of field sites. Um, and even involved the submarines that the u s had that were committed to the NATO deterrent who were also practicing and if you were in a Russian submarine, you could tell when your u s counterpart was practicing as well or at least was going to a higher level of alert so what they saw collectively, what the East Germans saw what the Soviets saw was um a NATO suddenly um and unusually at that point going to a state of high alert. Um, the Soviets responded in kind. We know now that they deployed their intermediate-range ballistic missiles to the field and put them on three-minute combat alert. There is fragmentary but not conclusive evidence that members of the Soviet military high command went to bunkers during this period um, there is conclusive evidence and eyewitness testimony that Soviet cadets throughout the uh, cadets throughout the Soviet Union were limited to were kept on base throughout this exercise, which had never happened before um, and waiting out essentially the exercise and seeing what would happen or whether it would end or whether it was some prelude to a NATO attack against, let's say, Warsaw Pact forces in Poland, which the Soviet Union would have interpreted as a war and would have been obliged to respond in kind, probably with with nuclear weapons. The NATO exercise passed, but the tension did not obey. And in fact, it flared up once again a couple of months later when the U.S. held its annual strategic command global exercise. Usually when one country is exercising its nuclear forces, the convention is for the other country, the adversary, to just watch. They sometimes will do a couple of counter exercises to show that they're strong, beat their chest a little bit. These exercises were announced in advance because the U.S. didn't want to unduly alarm the soviet union when they were going through these because they knew the soviets were watching but in this case the soviets did something they had never done before they suddenly held their own fleet-wide military-wide strategic exercise so you had at at the exact same time so you had both countries nuclear arsenals on simulated alert Now the difference between a simulated alert and a real alert if you're just watching from mars is basically not. I mean, you don't know if you're watching from high above or you're watching from the ground and you don't have access to information, whether these are actual nuclear weapons on these fighter jets or whether they're dummy bombs. You just see them taking off and you see people scrambling and you see people going to bunkers. And that's what you see. Um, and so both countries are doing this at the same time, uh, which the U.S. noticed suddenly and became quite alarmed at. Um, So how close did we come? Well, the nuclear command and control system is not terribly reliable. And on the Soviet side, it experienced several single point failures. We know that Soviet spies had figured out um, ingeniously how to at least spoof, if not sabotage, NATO's nuclear command and control system, send perhaps messages through the system that might have triggered some sort of reaction from NATO. Uh, I would say that, in terms of how close you can actually get, we we were pretty close, and without significant de-escalation and true efforts to sort of stop and say, what are we actually doing here? What is the other side thinking, and what are we accomplishing? we might have gotten to an an even worse point. But when one country is secretly deploying its second strike capability to the field, as the Soviets did, and put them on three-minute combat alert, again, put yourself in the shoes of those commanders who are being told a certain amount of information and don't have the whole picture. It becomes very scary. Talking to U.S. soldiers and sailors who lived through the exercise at the time, they were prepared to go to war within days. They didn't necessarily think they would be, but at the time they were absolutely prepared for it. And they would have done that based on what the other side was showing, what the other side was signaling to them.
0: So we got pretty close. The chapter on Project Ryan really drives home the point that nuclear deterrence is as much about Understanding your adversary, as it is maybe technical knowledge. Can you talk a little bit about Project Ryan and some of the intelligence operations that you you discuss in the book?
1: Well, after absolutely after the defense establishments on both sides sort of began to see the nuclear contest as a as a way um, not to deter each other but to shape. Uh, and and fight a nuclear war, the KGB and the GRU, which is Soviet military intelligence, instituted a project called Project Ryan, which or Rian, um, which uh, is an acronym for the Soviet word for surprise nuclear attack, kind of similar to something the CIA, of course, and and our defense intelligence agencies would do. But the idea was that the single top priority of the Soviet intelligence services would be to look for signs that the adversary was planning a first nuclear strike. And there's, there's a problem right there, which is if your assumption is that they are planning a first nuclear strike and you're looking for signs that they are planning a first nuclear strike, you will interpret what you see as signs that they are planning a first nuclear strike. If you, if you want to find them, um, the US did not have such assumptions, and therefore the – although the US had essentially the same rubric as its top intelligence gathering priority in terms of strategic warning, it never believed that the Soviets came anywhere close because it was not as a matter of our sense of policy and what the Soviets would do. We never had any real belief that they would do that, but the Soviets did. Um the more we've learned over time about Project Rian, and a lot of that has come out of the wonderful work of Nate Jones at the National Security Archive at George Washington University, and then the Woodrow Wilson Center for um, International Affairs in Washington, which obtained documents from uh, the East German Intelligence Service after the end of the Cold War and had them translated, was uh, how, how, in a sense, pseudoscientific it was. There was a A computer, um, a a fairly primitive computer, but a computer that would literally take each sign and signal from a list of hundreds of different potential signs and signals, assign a weight to them, and then spit out a percentage that said, okay, there's an X chance that the U.S. is about to launch a thermonuclear attack against the Soviet Union. One of the the biggest signs and signals— again, owing to past Soviet experience, was a, a sudden and hidden change in nuclear communications procedures, particularly in NATO. And that, of course, happened right before the Able Archer exercise. I find uh, Project Rion fascinating because it's an example of what happens when a spy bureaucracy assumes something about the enemy and then looks for evidence to support that and then comes up with a conclusion based on their assumptions and the interpretation of the intelligence at the time. So you have that on one side of the sort of spy ledger. That's not good. What is good is during this period, working for both sides, you had a number of individual spies who spoke truth to power, risked their own lives and their families' lives to tell the truth and to alert each side that something was wrong, that either the Soviets were really, really afraid, or the US, the US was missing something really, really important. I say the US, I mean broadly more the West and NATO, because the spy that I'm talking about principally is Oleg Gordievsky, who was a KGB officer in London, who was spying on behalf of the, of, uh, the Secret Intelligence Service, or MI6. But... The Soviets had as their main spy, although they actually didn't know the identity because it was uh, – the spy was run by the Stasi, the East Germans, who did not share everything with the Soviets but, but shared many things. Rainier Rupp, who was a senior member of NATO's current intelligence staff, who had NATO been in any position or had any desire or intention to launch a first nuclear strike, would have been an in a position to know about it. Um, He was constantly pinged during this period. Are you, what are you seeing? How are you not seeing all this? What do you, what does this possibly mean? And he kept saying nothing is happening. Like there is no, or there are no plans for war. There are absolutely no plans for war. Unequivocally, um, although it took a while for the U.S. to accept what uh, the British secret intelligence service was trying to tell the CIA, Um, the work of these spies contributed to a reduction in tension, spies telling the truth about what's happened. So this story is also a story about intelligence failure and intelligence success at the same time. And that's something that's fascinating. It's sort of a dialectic there between intelligence bureaucracies that are missing warning signals and signs, uh, but spies that are really speaking truth to power and risking their own lives, regardless of what you think about the underlying morality of it all.
0: You can tell this book was written by a reporter and you reference the many interviews you conducted. Can you share some stories about people you met while uh, researching this book? Favorite story is um, just rather randomly
1: while doing a, a LinkedIn search for people who would have been at the U.S. Strategic Command in 1983 Came across a guy who uh his name is Al Buckles. And um from his LinkedIn profile, it turns out it just seemed that he had done a lot of different things at at uh, at SAC, the strategic air command, which later became US StratCom during that time. Um a lot of folks from this period you know, reach out to them, you know, you get a you get a fairly low hit rate, but sometimes people talk. Um turns out that Al Buckles was the institutional knowledge for all things nuclear command and control related would be the guy who, when there would be a new commander of the Strategic Air Command, be the one to brief that commander on everything from how the entire system worked to whether, whether it actually worked, to what the release procedures were, what their strengths were, what the blind spots were. He knew it all. He knew about all the programs that the U.S. had. Uh, he called me. I was driving on an L.A. freeway one day, and I just sent a message to an email that I thought was associated with him. He called me. I was in the middle of a, driving on a L.A. freeway, which meant I wasn't driving anywhere. I was kind of sitting in traffic. And he said, this is Al Buckles. And I said, oh, wow, uh, Mr. Buckles. Um, and I, you know, I, what I wanted to do was schedule interview with him down the road when I was at home and had my notes with me, but he just started talking. <laughs> and so I pulled to the side of the road and spent two hours on the phone with him, uh, put him on speakerphone. I had a, uh, my iPad with me. So I started recording the tele- with his permission, of course, his, the interview on my iPad, but I was literally on the side of an LA freeway for two hours. He kind of told me, you know, in very granular detail, this is what it was like to be on alert. This is what we were looking for. This is what we were seeing. And it was amazing. And I, I could tell that he was not unburdening himself, but that he was just, this was in his entire life that he was downloading for me. When someone does that as a reporter, it's just an amazing privilege. He was also careful to not reveal information that he thought was still classified. So there were things in the conversation and places I wanted to go that he wouldn't go that I found fascinating. But it, it was an amazing experience, it's the type of experience that if if you're a reporter, it's why you become a reporter. It's when someone calls you and fills in blanks that need to be fill in, filled in, and you can tell their passion for this, and they can tell your passion for this, and you, you just have a meeting of the minds. Um, but it was an unusual place to conduct in, an interview, but you know, there you go.
0: (laughs) Well, Mark, we've taken up a lot of your time. Before we let you go, could you tell us about what you're working on now?
1: Uh, I am starting another book uh, about the uh, intelligence failures leading up to the uh, invasion of Pearl Harbor by Japan, and then the efforts by U.S. cryptographers to avenge those failures afterwards. Uh, that's that's one project that'll probably take another five years. But um, primarily, what I am my, my as I'm working on this book, I would say my one of the larger things that I'm trying to do with my work at USC is train a new generation of national security journalists for an era where. It is extremely hard to protect information that you get from your sources, that you're very vulnerable to all sorts of different harassment campaigns, whether it's from U.S. government, whether it's from people who don't like what you're writing, who can track you down and bully you online. Trying to find new ways, essentially, of defending and protecting national security journalists uh, and allowing them to do their incredibly vital jobs. Obviously in an era when it seems that our uh, our norms and habits and customs have been, you know, defenestrated and we're just trying to rebuild a building and coming up with new principles and ethics. So I'm working on that and it's an interesting project because we really don't have an endpoint other than we want to create a new and, and a new passionate cadre of young journalists who are ethical uh, and who are aggressive and who want to hold powerful interest accountable. So working on that, but in the, in the short near term, I will be talking as much as possible about the book and trying to make correspondences between that era and this era, talking about Russian leaders and what Vladimir Putin wants out of the United States, why the NATO deterrent remains important and what benefits the US gets from it and and also what burdens it places on the US. So I just see my general work as one of trying to communicate complex national security stories to to a broader audience. And you can find me on Twitter at Mark Amander, M-A-R-C, A-M-B-I-N-D-E-R and more information about what I do at my website, which is just myname.com.
0: And we can make sure to link those on our Twitter also. Thanks, Mark, for being on the show today. My absolute pleasure. The Brink by Mark Ambender is available now from Simon & Schuster. Thanks for listening to New Books and National Security, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.